Sincerely, happy Easter. Um, it's really, Christmas is a great holiday, but Easter really, you know, Easter wouldn't have happened without Christmas, but there'd be no point in Christmas without Easter. But this morning we're uh, going to be in John chapter 19 and 20, and we're going to cover a decent chunk, I think. Uh, but I think the scripture says better things than I do pretty much, well, in fact, all the time, every time. And so we're going to read a lot of scripture together. Um, but the title of today's message is Out of the Tomb, Out of the Tomb. And last week um, was Palm Sunday, and we looked at the King of Israel, how uh, the real King of Israel, Jesus, was coming into town and he rode it on a donkey. And the people praised him and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, the one who came, comes in the name of the Lord. And they laid down their clothes and laid down the palm branches. But I think a lot of them thought, uh, as we looked at, that maybe it was a political thing, that maybe he was coming in to be their political messiah. And I'm sure that some had a, a better idea. Uh, but here we are a week later, a week later. I think last Sunday or last uh, Sabbath he comes in and they lay down all the palm branches and they sing to him. But since then, a lot has happened. A lot has happened. They had the Passover meal. They prepared the meal. They ate in the upper room, uh, as we know. Uh, he had communion with his disciples. He instituted a Lord's Supper like we took together. He washed their feet. Um, uh, he was betrayed by Judas. Judas walked out. Jesus said, hey, go do what's in your heart to do. Um, they pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he prays several times. The disciples fall asleep. <laughs> I know what that's like. Um, but the soldiers come with Judas. Judas betrays him. Peter fights and cuts off that guy's ear. Jesus puts his ear back on. But the disciples flee at this time. They had all pledged their allegiance to him. They had all hung around and stuck close to him through this whole time, even though his followers came and went through this time. Um, but when he was arrested, they all kind of went their own way. And even Mark talks about being a young boy. <laughs> he ran away pretty much naked, which is kind of funny. Um, but there's nothing funny about what the Lord is about to go through. You know, Peter denies Jesus, and Peter weeps. Jesus is scourged uh, almost to the point of death. Most people were killed by scourging, uh, where the Romans took the whips and they whipped his back. And I know we know all these stories, but to think about the reality of this, that 2,000 years ago, almost 1980-something years, whatever the, the calendar is with the lunar calendar and everything, but um, his back was ripped open. You know, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, it was worse than that. It was worse than that. The Bible talks about him being unrecognizable. You don't even know he was a man. It was like a worm. Um, Pilate, uh, he has a conversation with Pilate. Um, and as we're going to look at in a minute, but, um, you know, Pilate, the, the ruler of uh, Rome in the region. And uh, Pilate, not so sure what truth is. Pilate does see something different in Jesus. We don't know what his final reaction is. But we know that Pilate saw something different that the people were missing. We saw that Pilate even tried to offer up Barabbas, that murderer. Um, we see this picture of the gospel within the gospel of itself where this murderer goes free, but Jesus goes to the cross. And the people, um, maybe some of them, maybe they weren't there at uh, Palm Sunday, but they're now shouting to crucify him. And uh, in John 19, um, 10 and 11, it says, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and the power to release you? But Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You know that Jesus was there by choice. Jesus talks about, and uh, if we read in the scriptures, that he could have called down legions of angels to free him. That when they came to arrest him, he said, I am, and they all fell backwards. Jesus was giving them little glimpses that saying, Hey, yeah, I'm God, but I'm letting you do this. That I'm going through this for a reason out of obedience. You know, he absolutely could have stopped what was happening, but he didn't. He didn't. I don't know about you or me, but when we're in pain, you know, uh, I've never given birth, thankfully, and I never will. But, you know, I'm sure that that pain, you know, give me the, give me the medicine. Stop this pain. You know, my wife went through it the first time and she made it through, but the second time it was a lot harder and it hurt a lot more. So she took the medication sooner. So that made sense. And I understand that, you know, and I don't think any of us would falter for that. But Jesus, when he was suffering wrongly, suffering for our sin and being beaten for doing nothing wrong, he didn't do anything about it. I think if any one of us were arrested for a wrong reason or they didn't read us our Miranda rights or something, we'd be crying for a lawyer. Hey, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. You know, don't put me on death row. But not the Lord. Not the Lord. Let's go on to verse 12. Um, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. 
Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in, in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day, the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered um, to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. You know, Pilate sat down on, in this judgment seat. You know, there was a judgment seat where they would bring ruling and show basically like, hey, Pilate's in control. He's in control of this area. But it's interesting that we see this earthly authority versus a heavenly authority. That earthly authority in all its pomp and circumstance sits down in a throne of judgment to declare judgment on whom? The real authority. The heavenly authority, God Himself, um, God Himself, who even was stepped off His own judgment seat that He might receive the judgment uh, for you and me. And it's interesting that it was the preparation day of the Passover, where they were preparing, you know, unleavened bread and the, and the spotless lamb. That this whole time was pointing to the Passover. We remember back in Exodus when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he commanded them to put blood on the doorposts to make the unleavened bread, to basically have all their clothes ready to go in the morning and that they would be saved from this angel of death and be ready to go and that the angel would pass over them and uh, that they would be safe. But we saw that the Egyptian children died or anyone who didn't do that died when the angel came and they left. And And God was very specific about when to, when to celebrate. If we read in Leviticus um, 23, it talks about they uh, were supposed to eat the Passover meal on the 14th day of the first month, um, which is called uh, Nisan, if I'm saying that correctly. But it goes from mid-March to April. So it's about this time. But God was very specific. You have to do it on the 14th. And you know why? Because God, knowing all things beginning from the end, he knew that this is the day that Jesus was going to die, that this is the day that Jesus was going to go to the cross and be our Passover, that this beautiful ceremony of Passover and this thing that they could remember when God brought them out of Egypt was also a picture of Jesus bringing them out of sin and bringing them out of death and, and the rule of, uh, of Satan. But Jesus was being prepared here. He was a spotless lamb. You know, they were tenderizing his meat. They were preparing him. They were judging him, saying, hey, this is the one we're going to crucify. This is the one we're going to sacrifice. Just like you had to have a proper lamb when you went uh, to do actual sacrifices. It couldn't have a blemish. You couldn't bring the worst one from your flock, the one with a flat tire or the one with a, a broken, rusted whatever. You know, you had to bring the lamb that was spotless, the best one. Um, and that's who Jesus was. But he says here, Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? Shall I crucify your king? You really want me to kill your king? I have authority over you guys because I'm from Rome and you guys have a, a system and you have Herod, but really you, you fall under, under us. It's really just kind of we let you do what you want to do as long as you stay uh, in line to Rome. But he says, shall I crucify your king? Pilate knew that something else was different here as we're going to see what he writes on the sign on the cross. But he knew something was different about Jesus. He knew what the scriptures were saying. He knew that the, Jesus was their king. And yet, what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. You know, they were trying to get under his political skin, so to speak, that, hey, we're going to appeal to Caesar and you're going to get in trouble if, if you don't do what we say here because Caesar doesn't want any more riots. But think of that, that these religious guys who claim that God is their God would say, we have no king but Caesar. That's, that's kind of scary. But let's go on in verse 17. Again, think of Jesus standing there and Pilate standing there and this scene going on. I think sometimes as we read the Bible, we forget that it's, it's reality. Uh, verse 17, let's, before that, let's pray. Lord, again, we ask that, Lord, you would just reveal to us just how wonderful you are and how real this was and how um, willing you were to go through um, all of this for us and for your Father. And uh, God, we love you and we thank you for it. Please speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But it says, and he, bearing his cross, verse 17, went out to a place to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew uh, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin. Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have what I've written, I have written. 
Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top uh, in one piece. Uh, they laid therefore among themselves, they said therefore, excuse me, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, uh, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. It says he, bearing his cross, Jesus, bearing his cross, I think it's interesting that it says it's his cross, that really that cross should have been for you and me, that he owned it. They didn't say, hey, this isn't my cross. Why am I going to make me carry it? He picked it up as bloody as he was, as hurt as he was, and he carried it. And it says that they crucified him. Those simple words, they crucified him. You know, the, the fact of him carrying this cross, as we read in the other accounts of the scripture, and the, and the things that went on, and the laying him down, and nailing him to it, and hoisting him up, and the pain, and the agony, and the, the, the blood, and the violence of all this. And that simple word that they crucified him, that that it was them who did it, and it was us who did it, that we crucified our Lord, and that on each side of them, there was a criminal, one on each side. There was two thieves, and we read in other scriptures about the one thief coming to realize what was going on and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus promised him that he would be with him in paradise, showing that, hey, you just have to believe. But on each side of them, you know, it reminds me of what uh, uh, the mother of James and John Zebedee said, you know, that, hey, you know, come on, disciples, can they sit on your right hand on your left? And Jesus goes, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Not only in heaven is it really God's authority to give, but how is God's kingdom being ushered in on earth it was on the cross. And there were two people on his right hand and on his left, but they were thieves. They were thieves. You know, Jesus didn't want any of his followers to go to the cross with him. He didn't want them to be crucified with him. It was for him and him alone to do. We later see that some of them would be crucified for their faith. They would be martyred for their faith. But this event was for Jesus to do and to take on uh, himself and self alone for us. You know, they didn't really realize that this was the way God's kingdom was coming in, was through judgment. It wasn't through uh, a cavalry. It wasn't through uh, cavalry, rather. It wasn't through tanks. It wasn't through an army. But it was through Jesus taking the judgment of God upon himself for us. That that's how God's kingdom would be ushered in with Jesus with sinners on his left and right. Not with uh, his generals on his left and right. But you see here that uh, it says Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That this sign above him was written in all the major languages of the time. That it was able to be read um, by everyone who could see it. But it was he was the one and only. He was the only king. You know, Pilate understood that this guy was, hey... He was supposed to be their king. This guy is unlike any other man I've ever met before. You know, did he trust him for salvation? I can't really say yes or no to that. Um, you know, we'll find out one day. But I think he knew the reality that Jesus was something special and that he was their king. And, and it's interesting that like before Saul, when God was the ruler of Israel, that they wanted a man to be their king. And what just happened here? They said, we have no king, but we have Caesar. We don't want God to be our king. We want man to be our king. And I think that that's the mistake that we all make, that we want somebody else to make the decisions in our life, whether it's us or whether it's a family member or whether it's a government or whether it's um, someone we look up to as opposed to the decisions that God might make for our lives. So we wouldn't allow God to rule our lives and we should allow him to rule our lives because he really is the king. No matter what people say about him, no matter what we think about him, no matter what we think about he, what he went through, he really is um, the king. You know, did he trust in that salvation? I hope so, but uh, we don't know. We don't know. But the Gentiles and the Jews both took part in the crucifixion. You know, there's, there's throughout history, people have wanted to blame the Jewish people for crucifying Jesus. And yeah, they had a hand in it here, but it was obviously it wasn't all the all the Jewish people. His disciples were Jewish, right? The people who founded the church and, and Acts and everything, a lot of them were Jewish. So it's obviously not the Jews as a whole. It's obviously people. But we also see that the Roman government, that the Gentiles had involvement in it too. The Roman soldiers beat him. The Roman soldiers scourged him. None of them said, hey, hey, this is God. No, they ripped up his clothes. They took his belongings. They all had a part in it, you know. And there's, there's songs, and I think that they're good-hearted, talking about nails holding him there. Even today, like, it was our sin that held him there. And in a sense, I, I agree with that. In a sense, yeah, obviously the nails held him in, and, and our sin was the reason he was there. But I still believe that, man, he was there by choice. He was there because he wanted to die for us. And he knew that 
to be obedient to the Father, and the Father's will would be that he would die to us. And it was his love for his Father and his love for us that held him there. Any time he could have pulled himself off, it wasn't the weight of our sin was more powerful than God. God laid himself down. God laid himself down. And I, I know what the songs mean. I don't, wouldn't change the lyrics or anything like that, but I, just to make a point, you know, that the Lord was there on his, on his own will. But we see here that uh, it was in full public view. It wasn't a hidden act. That when Jesus was crucified, this shameful thing, when he was hung on a tree, it was out in the middle of everywhere, out in the middle of the city. Everyone could see it. Everyone could read it. Everyone could hear the screams of the other guys. Everyone could see the blood spattered everywhere. That this wasn't some backroom dealing, that this was a public execution. And the Lord wants everyone to see him. The Lord wants everyone to come uh, to know him. And, and whether they come to a, a church on a Sunday whether they ever find their ways past the church or into a church, the church goes out into the world and he wants us to be the witness in the world that, that, he might, uh, that they might see him. And they might see him not only just as some holy man, but as God crucified on the cross and, and taking all of our shame. You know, so many people struggle with shame. So many people are weighed down with guilt, like Peter, I'm sure, was at this point. But man, God does not want us to be weighed down by those things anymore, especially as believers. There's no need for us to be weighed down with guilt and shame. Now, that doesn't mean that when you sin and you feel shame, you say, oh, well, God forgave me, so I don't need to feel this. No, but to take that to the Lord and know that we can be free of it, that we don't need to walk around beating ourselves up. and We don't need to walk around dealing with the weight of these things. Yes, we may have them and we may have to go through them and bring them to the Lord. But at the end of it, God wants us to be free of it, that we can live a new life, not bound by our past life anymore. Not to say for the rest of your life, I'm alcoholic, but to say I'm free from alcohol or I'm free from whatever sin I've done. And I've done many shameful things in my life, but I know that those things don't have to hold me down. There are things that when I first got saved that I felt like they were holding me down and they were keeping me down. I felt like I had to make up for them. And I think in, in some sense it was it was a right heart, but I think really, man, when I finally, the Lord confronted me on those things, I realized I, I was free from them. That no matter what I did, I could never make up for it. And that God took the shame for those things. And not that I'm proud of them, hey, yeah, but that, man, that God had freed me from them, that I don't have to live a life under them and carrying that cross, so to speak, for the rest of my life. I think a lot of us carry our crosses in the wrong way. When, when we're supposed to carry the cross of the gospel, we don't need to carry the cross of our old sins, in a sense, anymore. Because why? Because who paid for them? Jesus did. We don't need to pay for them for the rest of our lives. There may be consequences, but Jesus paid for them. And if he paid for them, well, if Jesus paid the bill, if we went out to dinner, I'm not going to give any more money. Maybe I'll tip the waitress, but I'm not going to go pay the restaurant for my dinner twice. It's already paid for. You know, I'm going to keep that 650 in my wallet or whatever it is, you know. And that's the same thing that, you know, not to make too light of it, but sincerely, we carry around so much that we don't need to carry around because he carried it and he bore our shame um, publicly for us. That there's things that, that have been hidden in our lives that, I really, unless the Lord would use them, unless we're comfortable sharing them in the right situation, no one ever really needs to know about them. They're between us and the Lord. We don't need to go and, and uh, do some expose to be free of our sins, but he's done them. Let's go on to verse 25. Uh, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, that would be John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You know, we see here the love for family and his friends. You know, uh, love for his mom and for his friends and for John. Uh, and, you know, having kids, thinking about this, thinking about Mary looking up at her son on the cross, knowing that he's God and, and maybe having some idea of what was going to happen to it, but now actually seeing it go on. Um, I can't imagine, you know, my kids fall and bump their head and, and it, it's, oh man, it breaks my heart, but I can't imagine them being killed unjustly like this. Um, or think about having friends or thinking about your friends being lost or think about, you know, seeing your friends suffer and have to console each other. And, and Jesus knew that. And I think that this is an interesting picture here that we see that Jesus, even in his last hours, is concerned about his friends and about his family, that his mom would be taken care of and that she'd be, you know, that his friend would watch out for her but that their hearts were comforted in this last time. And I think that that's an interesting picture when we're here talking about God dying on the cross, you know, that we get a picture of him caring about those who are close with him. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. 
So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, you know, um, that he knew all things were now accomplished. I think it's interesting that at this point he's on the cross. He goes, I know everything's accomplished now. You know, he knew that everything was taken care of. Everything that he needed to do to be obedient was obedient. Everything that the Father's will wanted to accomplish uh, was, was passed. I mean, think about it, even before what God had planned before creation. You know, we talked about when God made the heavens and the earth, when God created the universe, when God created the angels, he knew in his infinite wisdom that eventually angels are going to fall, people are going to fall, they're going to rebel against me, and I'm going to have to send my son Jesus die on the cross. None of this stuff took God off guard when it happened. He knew it was going to happen, but he allowed it to happen as part of his plan. And Jesus knows that all of it is accomplished here, that what was set in motion after the fall what was prophesied about the Messiah coming to see the woman and crushing the head of the serpent was now accomplished. That what was, again, prophesied for thousands of years, promised for thousands of years through the scriptures and through the prophets and through the pictures that God gave through the nation of Israel was now accomplished. That the Messiah had come, the Messiah had suffered, and the Messiah was about to die as a sacrifice for the people. You know, the Jews had lived out his life for 33 years. The mission that God had given him um, those last three years of public ministry was now, in a sense, complete. There were other things that Jesus would do and would say, and the church would go on from here. But we know that the work that God did, the redemptive work, was about to be accomplished. It was complete. You know, Jesus didn't have to suffer in hell. There's whole thoughts where he went to hell and he suffered in hell. No, he suffered on the cross. Jesus was conquered hell. He conquered the grave at the cross. He suffered on the cross. And death and hell would be what? defeated by Jesus dying on the cross. That this suffering he did and, and died there. And the scriptures talk about him being preaching uh, liberty to the captives. You know, we talk about, we're not going to get into it for a time, but the different compartments of hell where he died before Jesus, he went Abraham's bosom. And then there was, uh, I forget the names of, you know, there's Hannah and Sheol and, and all the different compartments we get into. Um, but that he went and preached liberty to the captives and they went to heaven. And then those who, who didn't believe there's hell and hell eternal. Um, but not to get too heady and too lost and, and caught up in that, the fact that, that he didn't suffer there. He went to hell and he preached liberty to captives and he came back because the work was done on the cross. The work was done on the cross. You know, our sin and the effects of it and the judgment for it, you know, the disconnect between us and God and us and others, it's finished. That when Jesus said, it is finished, it's finished. It's over with. It's done. It's kind of like my kids are acting up and I say, that's enough. Enough is enough. You know, this is it. It's not going to happen anymore. There's not going to be any, any more to this. You're going to go in time out. You're going to go over here. I'm not going to let this go on anymore. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. But when Jesus said it is finished, it was the same thing with sin. That Yeah, we may still go out and sin, but the effects of it can be finished. The work God wanted to do was finished. And if we would but trust in that, we could be free from that. And again, not in this works that, you know, if you're sinning, you're not trusting it, and you get all back and forth in it. But really that we can be absolutely free from sin and not that this whole idea oh i'm you know some people say that they're sinless well we're always going to keep sinning but at least now we absolutely have a choice and a freedom not to anymore and beyond that we have a freedom to come to god we don't need to go through a sacrificial system anymore because the sacrificial system was finished with the ultimate sacrifice and that's jesus no longer do we need to go in and do a symbolic sacrifice of of goats and and sheep and birds and different things for different sins and different times of the year at a temple but now we can worship God in spirit and truth because the final sacrifice was made. You know, in the other scriptures, it talks about the veil being torn in the temple from the top to bottom and exposing the Holy of Holies. That God was saying it's now open. It's now available to everyone that there's one sacrifice you can trust in uh, to come to. And in fact, now we become, as Paul would say in Romans, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. That our lives now, instead of sacrificing ourselves because of our sin, we now sacrifice ourselves unto God that others might see and come to him and be forgiven. You know, again, but we're only bound if we want to be. You know, sin has no more power over us unless we give ourselves to it. Every time you and I as a believer are tempted, if we choose to sin, it's because we chose to. It's not because we had to. It's not because we were bound by it. Maybe it feels like that. Maybe the temptation is so strong and you've been habitually sinning in this way for so long where it feels like you have no choice. But the Bible would say that God always gives us a way out and there's always a way um, uh, to be free of it. There's always another option. And a lot of times sin, when we sin, we feel like we have another option. This isn't going to happen for me. No one's going to do this, blah, blah, blah. And we sin. But God would say that there is always an option. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled it all. And, you know, if there, had, if there was not an option, well, then Jesus didn't completely die for our sins. Um, and I think that that's, you know, 
theologically obvious, but I think practically, you know, I know I definitely forget about that sometimes. But it says that, you know, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. And he's just saying, I don't know about you or I, but when I come to die, I'm probably not the one to give up my spirit. You know, I'm just, my body's going to give out or the Lord's going to rapture me or whatever. I'm not really in control of that. But it says that he gave up his spirit, that even in the very end, Jesus was in control. He didn't die one second before he allowed himself to die. He didn't take on one sin before he allowed himself to take it on. He was in control even when he was nailed to a cross. And would think anyone else would think that, man, this guy is not in control of anything. Let's go on. Verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they may be taken away. <laughs> That's an interesting request, right? Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. That's John talking about himself seeing this. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him um, whom they pierced. You know, they wanted, to, they wanted to get this over with. It was a Passover. We don't want to leave the bodies up. We want to make sure they die and take them down. We're trying to pass over here. We don't want to uh, break our uh, religious laws. Um, so they say, hey, go break the guy's legs. And the point of that was to cause asphyxiation. As you know, you're on the cross. You have to kind of lift yourself up to breathe and, and breathe out. So if they break your legs, you have no platform to breathe. So eventually your body weight just kind of uh, suffocates you. Um, but they die here. But when they got to Jesus, I mean, that's horrible enough. You're on the cross dying. And they come around, they, they break your legs. That's, that's violent. But uh, they say that they pierced Jesus' side and blood and water flowed out. You know, they talk about the, his heart breaking and the fact that he bled out so much and he was truly dead that the, the fluids began to separate in his body. But I think that, you know, that we are forgiven by his blood and we are washed in his word. You know, the word is the water of God. And you think as, you know, remember the Lord kind of ministering to me through a rough season of my life about the water and the blood coming out of him. That, yeah, when I, when I first came to the cross as an unbeliever, and don't take this as dogmatic truth, but it's sort of something that ministered to me. When I first came as an unbeliever, I just came and saw Jesus on the cross and his blood washed me. But now as a believer, I know the word. And I have the blood. And those things are enough. I don't need to go back to the cross in a sense. I don't need to go back and ask to be saved all over again. Is what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is that I am forgiven and that it's okay. That his blood is still for me as a believer. That his blood and his water that was poured out was still for me as a believer. That I can still come to his blood and still come to his word and be forgiven. And that I don't need to, you know, in a sense, go back to square one. And did I, do I have to like unrepent and repent again? You know, it's, it's sealed. It's done. It's forgiven. I'm washed. I'm clean. And I can go forward from that. But it was a complete separation of Jesus here. We see from his family, from his friends, from his body, even from all his body fluids had drained out. Um, they, his body fluids had even separated here. Um, but also from his life and from his father. We read in other accounts where, you know, Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? That his father turned his face from him. That there was a complete separation here. That Jesus might take on the full effect of sin, which is separation from God. You know, we know about hell and eternal damnation is separation from God. And God never intends that for any one of us. Any person on earth that goes to hell is because they've chosen it. And God does not want them to go there. That's why Jesus was separated from the Father for a time. Because God does not want us to be separated from Him. And that's what sin does in any of our relationships, in our family, and in our friendships. Sin separates. You sin against a friend, you know, the, and maybe the, it grows away a little bit. Maybe even if you ask for forgiveness, it doesn't even get better. But you know, you sin against your family and it creates rifts in families. Think about divorce. Think about uh, being faithful and all these things. You're unfaithful, rather. It really separates. That's the same thing with God. You know, that if we sin, it separates us from God. And not that God doesn't want us to be around him, but if he's holy and perfect and we're deciding to go the unholy and imperfect and evil route, well, there's going to be separation. And, and the ultimate separation is hell forever where... It's separation from God. I mean, what kind of worse feeling would that be than being in, in hell? When you realize, you know, you have full knowledge at this point. And you realize, I had all these opportunities to come to God. I didn't come to him. My cousin ministry ministered to me. I heard a message on the radio. I kept saying no. I kept saying no. I heard all these people. And you're just alone and on fire, basically. And it's just torture. But you also know that you're separated from God, that there's no way back now. 
no way back. I don't know if you ever like lost a loved one or lost in a relationship and been broken up and just feel like totally separated and broken. Just imagine that for forever and even worse. And, and God does not want us to feel that way. He, want us, he wants to be with us forever. He does not want us to be separated with him. He wants us to be one with him. You know, um, and again, that's complete atonement for us. Jesus was separated completely for us. We might never have to suffer the complete effects of sin. We might never have to suffer complete uh, being separated from God. But this account doesn't describe the earthquake or the temple being torn like we talked about, like the others do. This one, this account is more personal, I think. I think that the focus here is, is more on the Lord himself and his love for us and his love for the ones that, that he was close with. That It's a personal account here. We see Jesus suffering and um, we see his family and his friends around him. But we see that more scripture is fulfilled. You know, that, that they shall look on him who they pierce and that they, they separated his garments. That all these things that were prophesied are coming true here on the cross. You know, these soldiers who probably just a bunch of meathead Roman soldiers are ripping up his clothes and gambling over his nice jacket. And, uh, and they don't even realize that they did it, therefore, because they're fulfilling scriptures. That even in, in this moment, when they think they're in control, when they think they're getting away with something, when they're crucifying this man, that they're only doing what God had already known was going to happen. God had only allowed to do it. In fact, God had written it down that they might fulfill it. Um, but they looked on him who they pierced. You know, imagine that scene, looking at him, hanging on the cross, like we talked about, totally bled out, totally ravaged. Uh, like we talked about unrecognizable, hanging between thieves. We've got soldiers around, religious guys around. Um, his mother and John and the other women were there. You know, his torn clothes, there's blood everywhere. I mean, blood everywhere. I mean, this isn't like a a clean, sterile situation. There's probably blood everywhere. Um, you know, the sky is probably growing dark. You know, there's an earthquake. And it's all during one of the most important holy days in Israel. You know, they're all worried about getting the bodies off the cross for uh, the, the Passover. And Jesus is dying there. God is dying there. Um, you know, that's a, uh, a stark thing. I know this message is heavy, but I think we need to remember that from time to time. I think that, um, you know, we can find real joy um, from knowing how important and how somber uh, this day really was. But let's go on. And after this, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby. When you see Joseph Arimathea, Pilate gave permission. Nicodemus was there. Uh, you know, Nicodemus, obviously his life was changed by his encounter with the Lord. But he was prepared, as we read last week, for his burial. That when Mary washed his feet with the oil of spikenard, that she was preparing him for his burial. And here it is, a week later, he's being buried. Uh, it's interesting that they bring all these pounds, 100 pounds of, of these spices. That's probably, I didn't you know, do any research on how many pounds per person. But I would think that 100 pounds of spices is way more than enough to bury one person. I think that shows just how much they cared, that they were willing to bring everything they had to bury him, to put him in this tomb that I'm sure wasn't a cheap tomb. And no one had been laid in it before. It was, um, you know, this was uh, well-off people coming in to take care of Jesus here. But it says that there was a garden where Jesus, Jesus was crucified. There was a little garden here where they were going to bury him, as we'll see. Um, but there's also a garden where God made the promise of the Messiah to come, like we talked about, to crush the serpent's head, that we see a garden where sin first happened, and Jesus was promised. And now we see a place where Jesus was crucified. There's also a garden. I don't know if you can make too much out of that, but I think it's, it's an interesting correlation there. You know, there's a new tomb where no one had been laid. No one had been laid in this tomb before because, and I think, and again, that's, that's symbolic, is that no one else could have done this. No one else could have died on the cross in this way and gone before us in this way. And there's no one else who will come after who will do it again. There's no other Messiah to come that we can trust in. And there was no other one to come before that we can put our faith in. You know, First uh, Corinthians fifteen uh, thirty nine through fifty eight. I'm not going to read it all for time, um, but check it out later for homework. I'm going to read the, the the end of it here. But it says, "O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is 
Where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It talks about that just like there's heavenly bodies and there's animals and there's people, that there's also a first Adam and a last Adam, a first Adam that sinned, a body, that a life that we must die, and we must take on a new life, and that could only happen through the cross. Only happened through the cross. Let's go on and read chapter 20. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, as John again, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. You know, Mary went while it was still dark. You know, if you've ever been up all night distraught over something or lost a loved one or just in anguish over something, think about it. You can't wait to get out and take care of it. And also that she had to wait for the Sabbath to be over, that she couldn't go out and do this um, until the morning. Um, but again, we don't see talk of angels yet. We don't see the talk of the Roman guards, but just the personal connection of John and the women with Jesus, you know, such sorrow, you know, now where is he? You know, we just lost him on the cross. He just died on the cross. But now where's his body? We can't even come and see his body. We can't even come and pay respects. Um, you know, I think if people lost loved ones in September 11th, you know, or, or if you've lost someone in a disaster like that, where they don't even have a body they can bring home. They don't even have something that they can tangibly put in the ground because uh, they've lost someone. And what, what, how much harder it must be to, to get closure in a situation like that. And so that's, she's weeping here. She's upset here. You know, where is he? We've lost him. And now we've really lost him. We don't even know where he is now. But she forgot about Jesus' words about raising the temple up. You know, and we see that here too, where they, where they didn't yet understand that Jesus said he was going to be uh, resurrected. You know, I can imagine Peter and John here on a mission. They're grief-stricken. They're furious for what happened. They're tired. They're, they're distraught. Um, you know, Peter's probably got still this whole sort of guilt that he's wrestling with over betraying the Lord the night before with the rooster crowing three times. But they want to get to the bottom of what happened to the Lord. You know, maybe they're out of breath. It's early in the day. Maybe they didn't get a lot of sleep. Maybe they're up all night. Maybe their faces still were dirty from crying. Uh, and Peter, like I said, was wrestling with this guilt. And they ran and they got there and they look in. And they see the grave clothes kind of over here, the, the strips of linen. And they see the the... The towel that was around his head folded up, you know. I wonder if they thought of Lazarus. I wonder if they maybe sort of remembered when Lazarus came to life there. I don't know. But they didn't yet know the scripture, you know. They didn't know the scripture that Jesus would come back yet. You know, it says that John believed. They believed that, that he was back, but they, you know, they believed that he wasn't there. Um, but they memorized scripture, you know. Maybe you remember scripture. Maybe you remember it or you know scripture. A lot of us, I think we know the scripture, but to truly know it. They truly know it. I mean, they all heard the words of Jesus. They all probably could have remembered that he said that, but they didn't really know it. It hadn't really gained that, that traction in their heart yet. And I think that it's very important that we not only know the scripture for what the Bible says, but that we allow it to be a part of our lives, that when hard times come, and even when we sin, that we would know, well, yeah, I sinned really bad, and I'm really guilt-stricken about this, but I know that the Bible says, First John 1, 9, if I confess my sins, he is uh, faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And, and other verses, too, that we would know them that, hey, yeah, I've done this, but I know that I know that Jesus is alive, and I can come to him with these things. Because if we don't, when hard times come, if we don't really know the scriptures, or when those hard times come and we don't allow ourselves to learn those scriptures in hard times, uh, we're still going to be lost. We're still going to be like Mary, weeping and crying because we don't know where the Lord is when He when He's right there, as we'll see here. Verse 11, as we get ready to close out in this last section, that when Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Uh, it's great that he, that he allows Mary to see this. But then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. 
Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. It's interesting, the disciples didn't see the angel sitting there. They just saw the clothes. So God obviously wanted to reveal this to Mary Magdalene. But she didn't go home. She was too distraught. The other disciples saw it. They went home. She was just, just a wreck and a wreck as she looks in there. And these two angels... If you remember the Ark of the Covenant has two angels with their wings, the cherub over uh, over the top of the judgment seat there. Abraham Lot, and Lot, you know, God comes down and uh, um, and he has two angels with him to go look uh, in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I'm not saying it's the same guys, but I think it's interesting that there's other pictures of the Lord shows up with angels or that there's angels guarding the Garden of Eden, that they had the flaming swords. And we see two angels here uh, like the Ark of the Covenant again. But she was so distraught, and Jesus was right there. She's crying. She's upset. She's talking to angels. She's so upset. And uh, Jesus is right there. He says, hey, what's the matter? And she doesn't even realize that it's the Lord. She thinks it's the gardener. Uh, it's just funny. But she says, hey, you know, tell me where he is, and I'll, and I'll take him. You know, how can Mary, I don't know how big of a lady Mary was, but carrying a, a grown man is not an easy thing to do. I mean, maybe she knew the fireman's carry to put him over and get the leg, and apparently it's easier to carry somebody that way. I don't know. But... I don't know. She was so distraught. She was so willing. Just wherever Jesus is, just let me come. I wanna, I wanna take care of him. I wanna uh, to handle this. You know, don't, don't let him be out there um, uncovered. But she sees her teacher. She sees her teacher. I think that that's great. That you know, there's, uh, she sees the one she loves, and when she hears his voice, she knows right away that this is Jesus. When he says Mary, when he says her name, he knows right away that it's him. You know, we see that Mary is sent to go tell the disciples. And, you know, if you're really going to fake a story back in those days, you're not going to have a woman do it. Because in that culture, in Jewish culture, you know, woman, unfortunately, was looked at as a lesser class. So if a woman came and said something, you might not believe it as you might uh, when a man comes and says it. Um, uh, But obviously, the Lord thinks differently about women. And that's a good thing. And he sends her, um, you know, and I think part of it was she was so distraught. She loved the Lord so much. That she was there. You know, if the disciples had hung around a little longer, maybe they would have seen him too. Uh, but they kind of saw that he wasn't there and, and, they, and they left. Uh, but he says, to, I go to my, I'm going to go to my father and your father, to my God and your God. You know, total unity now. He's reminding her, you know, like in Matthew, uh, they said to him in Matthew 12, 47, Behold, your mother and thy brethren stand without uh, desiring to speak with you. But he answered and said to them, who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hands toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. He's saying, Hey, remember, we're all family now. I'm your God, but also my God, the Father, is your God. And, um, and we're together. We're together now. I'll read just a little bit, a little bit more here. Um, Then the same day of the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So the Jews said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. You know, peace be with you. Peace be with you. God wanted them to have peace. They were distraught. They were upset. You know, don't be afraid. You know, I'm not a ghost. I'm, I'm really here. And he begins to send them out. Just as he says, just as God sent me out, I'm now sending you guys out. And they're given the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not yet Pentecost, but now uh, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within them again. Like we know that the veil um, was open. In verse 24, now Thomas called the twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, I put my finger into the print of the nails, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, the disciples were again inside with Thomas with them. And Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. I love it. Jesus just shows up when he wants to, right in the middle of the room, and he says, Don't be afraid. Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here. 
and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Um, you know, Jesus didn't hear. Jesus knew what Thomas said. He wasn't there to hear it. But now there's there's no holding back. Jesus is revealing that he knows all and everything and every time. And he gives Thomas an opportunity here. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those um, who have not seen and yet have still believed that Jesus still ministered to Thomas, even in his unbelief, he gave him an opportunity to touch his side and touch his hands and have his criticisms. Uh, and I think rightfully so. You know, you see Jesus crucified in a sense, you know, I'm not going to believe any fraud. I want to see the nails and I want to see um, uh, the holes in his side. But he gives him an opportunity here. And he says that those who haven't seen and believe, blessed are they. And think of us. We haven't seen Jesus. Yeah, we haven't seen him walking around. Uh, maybe you have. If you have, maybe we need to talk later. But really, we haven't seen him. And yet we believe. And Jesus says that that's blessed. That we read the scriptures, as we'll see here in a minute. And we believe. That was the whole point of John writing this, as he says. That people would believe um, in, in the facts of Jesus' resurrection. Um, but in these last couple of verses here, uh, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written um, in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You know, that these are written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. Written that we may believe that he's the Messiah, that he's the one who came to pay for all our sins. We're written to believe that he's not only the Messiah, but he's that the Son of God. That if we've seen Jesus... We've seen God and the attributes of Jesus are the attributes of God that, that we can know God through Jesus. And from that, that we can have life in his name. That when we believe in Jesus, that we get life unlike any other life on earth. We get a really resurrected life, a new life that, yeah, maybe we still have to go to work and we still have the same struggles or the same things that we go through. We have to vote in elections. We have to pay our bills. We have to get up and go to work. We have crying babies or we have situations with friends and other things but that we have a new life in the midst of all that, that we know that, that this isn't our final resting place, that when we die, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be with him. And we can have a taste of that even now here on earth. And I think it's really easy to get a taste of that in worship sometimes. But that there's no, no new life and no other name. A lot of people will promise you a new life like we talked about uh, in the past, but God is the only one who can really give it to us. And he gives it to us in a personal way. It's not just, here you go, guys. Everyone kind of gather up to the buffet, but it's one by one. Jesus comes to us individually and meets our concerns and our needs and, and challenges us in our unbelief. Um, but will we believe? You know, Will we let him be our God? Will we share the same father as he does? The same family, the same destiny, the same life? From the cross, will we allow these things to become a part of our lives? Will we allow the cross and the resurrection and Jesus' death to be a part of our lives? Or will it just be some saying that we know of? Will it be just some scripture that we know? Or will our lives truly be lived like our Father is the same Father of Jesus? Like your Father is my Father and your God is my God. Will we all unite in that? Or will we live our lives like everyone else where we're kind of this tribe or that tribe and I'm from here and I'm from there? Or are we going to really live together as we're from um, the Lord? You know, Jesus uh, said to him in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. That, man, we know God. From this time forward, from the resurrection forward, we absolutely know who God is. And that's Jesus. No one else has come back from the dead. We're trying all over the world to try and perfect medicine to be able to come back from the dead. Put your brain in a computer and one day we'll build you a body and put you in that. But that's not new life. That's not new life. That's not resurrected life. Um, we need to leave the tomb behind. Jesus buried our past. The things that have weighed us down in the past, things that maybe we did this morning that maybe weigh us down, we need to leave them in the grave. We need to give them to the Lord and let him bury them because he's the only one who's able to. You know, he's the gardener of our life. Jesus thought he was a gardener, but he really is. He's the only one who can put new life um, into our garden. Um, but we need to leave the grave behind too. We can't just sit in the grave and take off the grave clothes and kind of sit there and say, okay, this is great, you know. But we need to leave the places that are dead in our lives. We need to leave the places that are dead spiritually for us and go on to uh, the places that are alive in Jesus. You know, we need to walk and we need to live a new life. You know, not the one that we've made for ourselves. You know, maybe you've amassed a lot of things in your life, whether it's education or friends or popularity or power or possessions. 
But the Lord would say that we need to leave those things behind uh, from time to time to truly follow Him. It doesn't mean we need to always do it, but sometimes there's cases where we need to do so to follow Him and to follow Him uh, completely. Um, you know, because we need to live the life that God has given for us, the one that He had planned for us before the foundations of the earth. God says that He had plans for each one of us. And Jesus said that what? That it's accomplished. That it's finished. That God sealed the deal on all those plans for us on the cross. That if He didn't go on the cross and die for us and rise again, there's no way we can inherit the promises of God. There's no way we can inherit the good things of God for our life. There's no way we could have the new life that God intended for us if our sin wasn't dealt with first. It's the same thing like in a relationship or a marriage. If you and your spouse get in a fight, if you've done something wrong, there's no way that marriage is going to be perfect and, and on a right path again until you make amends for those wrongs, or until you seek forgiveness for that. That's the same way with our relationship with the Lord. It's the same way with our life. Until we allow God to cleanse out the death in our life and give us a new life, there's no way we can go on and, and have all that he has for us. You know, none of us would be sitting here today if we didn't at some point come to God and say, hey, God, I need you. You know, we'd all be doing something else. I'd be doing something else. Who knows if we'd be alive? Who knows if we'd know each other? Who knows if we'd even live in the areas we live? But because we know Jesus, we can have that new life. And I think the better part of that is that that life goes on forever. That death um, is not going to stop that life. That even when we die, we have the confidence of knowing that, well, yeah, we'll be resurrected and we'll be resurrected uh, to eternal life. Amen. Uh, Father, we thank you for, uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you that you fulfilled all the word and the scriptures on the cross. And that, Lord, you, I know we hear it a million times that you died and you rose again. And sometimes we can kind of take that rote or trivially, trivially, but Lord, we know that God, you are real and you really are alive. And because you're really alive, we are really forgiven. God, help us to walk in that today. Help us help our lives to be full of that Holy Spirit, that others might taste your forgiveness and see you. And God, help us to not be ashamed of it. Help us to be willing to live a new life. The world is, is so proud of all their lives and their lives and their wicked lifestyles. But God, help us to be not in a wrong way proud, but in a, wrong, in a right way open about our holy lives and our righteous living. That others might not see our goodness for we don't have any God, but that they would see you and that we have a Father and that we have a God who loves us enough to die for us. And that who's so powerful, um, death can't hold him. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Fill us, we pray, and bless us all, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.